Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining this webinar of the Transform Finance Investor Network on uh, Fair Chance to Work, Employment Pathways for Excluded Individuals. My name is Andrea Armeni. I am the Executive Director of Transform Finance, and I'm delighted to welcome you today. Uh, we'll be having a very quick uh, presentation and catch up on a couple of investor network items, and then we will turn it over to our two presenters, uh, Jonathan Halpern and uh, Mike Brady from uh, Grayson. Very excited to have both of them here to tell us a bit about their work, the history of Grayson, the open hiring model, and the new initiatives that they have coming up um, of special relevance for some of the members of our investor network that are looking at um, an inclusive hiring opportunities. Um, quick couple of updates on our end. I'm very excited to welcome Eric Horvath, who just joined us this week at Transform Finance as a program manager for community and social justice partnerships. While his work will be focused on um, more on the activist uh, community, social justice practitioner end of the Transform Finance agenda, he will also be interfacing with the investor community to uh, both lift up some of the voices from, uh, um, from the activist side of our work, but also um, as a way to, um, to understand better what your needs might be in terms of how you're trying to reconcile your investment practice with social change and social justice. His email is there, eric at transformfinance.org. I encourage you to, um, to reach out to him. Uh, give him a welcome, tell him what's on your mind, and uh, we'll find him to be a, a great resource for, uh, for you all. Um, I also wanted to mention, in terms of our upcoming in-person events, uh, which are always pretty exciting, that we will be hosting a gathering at the Latin American uh, Impact Investor Forum in, uh, in Merida, in Mexico, uh, February 28th and March 1st. For our investors from the um, LATAM region, we would encourage you to um, to join us. It would be great to uh, it would be great to see you there and to have you there as um, as always. And that will be yeah, uh, Merida, Mexico, February 28th, March 1st. Uh, I'll be presenting there. Aner Benami from Candide will also be presenting, and you'll see a lot of the uh, familiar faces there. And then we could not really do a webinar this week, I suppose, without uh, at least a quick mention of uh, BlackRock's Larry Fink letter. Um, many of you might have already seen this. So Larry Fink, the CEO of uh, uh, BlackRock, biggest uh, asset manager in the world, uh, came out last week with his annual letter in which he stated that society is demanding that companies, public and private, serve a social purpose. Right? that companies must make a positive contribution to society, that he will be encouraging the companies in the, um, in the Black, Black Rock portfolio to do so. And interestingly says, companies must benefit all of their stakeholders, including shareholders, employees, customers, and the communities in which they operate. You won't be surprised to see that this is quite a radical departure from the um, traditional um, theory of shareholder primacy. Now, um, this has been applauded, of course, as, a, as an interesting uh, development in terms just of the size of the trillions of assets that ostensibly will be influenced by this. There have also been words of caution because in the past, um, uh, BlackRock's uh, grant statements have not necessarily been followed up with, uh, um, with activity. 
that was the case for their statement a few years back around excessive share buybacks, where BlackRock did not take voting decisions that were aligned with uh, Larry King's statement. It has slightly changed over time with respect to their uh, climate change votes. They have been um, uh, getting to be a little bit more aligned, but I want to see. I want to look at this again, especially with respect to the to network membership, not in terms of um, is this good or is this bad uh, in the abstract, but is there anything that we could do to really support this thesis, right? How can we make sure that BlackRock is held accountable for what it says it does? How can they operationalize what they're doing? In a sense, even though we are the very small potatoes, we do have a lot more experience in some of these uh, implementation ideas around how to include other stakeholders, how to have a, a multi-pronged approach to value creation that hopefully we'll find a way to communicate to them. Again, if you're interested in the theory of change around how we can influence an actor such as uh, BlackRock, please do reach out. It'll be exciting to find a way to do so. Um, another quick announcement, we will have a webinar with our colleagues at the GIN, the Global Impact Investing Network to discuss the recent issue brief on uh, responsible exits and how to structure them into deals. Um, we'll look at the work that they have done, a couple of the case studies, as well as uh, some of the next edge in responsible exits uh, in terms of how to bake the mission into the enterprise in such a way that it is not jeopardized by a potential exit. With that, let's turn over to the um, content of today's, um, of today's webinar. Really, I view it broadly as this idea of the need to create fair opportunities for work, and then we will uh, zero in, zoom in on, uh, the work that, uh, uh, on the work that Grayson is, uh, is doing in this, uh, in this area. And we can think of it as the usual approach that we take in terms of who is getting left behind, right? Uh, we are in a period of economic recovery. However, if you look around, probably you don't feel like that recovery is being spread out evenly across all members of, uh, of our society. So how can we ensure that the, that the recovery that is happening um, actually flows in particular to those that have historically been excluded and have uh, had fewer opportunities um, in, in an economic sense, but also in a social sense? And it ties into other areas of our prior conversations around uh, the wealth gap, the racial justice angle of, uh, of opportunities to work, especially opportunities around quality jobs. There is this fundamental inconsistency in uh, the lack of employment opportunities with that approach that in, uh, in an era's words again, who wins and who loses in the economy through the investments that we, uh, that we make. More broadly, we think of it in the context of the role that investors can play in creating a fair future for work. Uh, as some of you know, we are working with Tonsi Whelan at NYU Stern, the Center for Sustainable Business, on how investors can and should be thinking about the changing dynamic of, labors, uh, of labor, in particular in a world of uh, growing wealth inequality. Again, Oxfam came out with its uh, report this year that had an interesting twist compared to prior uh, issues where they put uh, um, just the, the stark difference in wealth held by the top 42 people in the world versus uh, um, uh, the, the bottom half in terms of, uh, of wealth holdings of the world's population. 
they actually were looking at it uh, from, a, from a progress perspective, looking at just how much more that gap has grown over the year, and uh, the figures are fairly disheartening. So there is a certain urgency to this. So how does this fit from an investor's perspective, the, the, the issue of oh, yeah, uh, of fair email about at, it. Uh, oh, at work? Okay. Um, if you could all please uh, mute yourselves, we'll... Uh, <laughs> you mute yourself. Thank you. So um, uh, this intersects with several areas that we've been looking at, as we're saying. Criminal justice reform, some of you might remember that uh, convening at the Rockefeller Family Fund uh, about a year ago, where we're looking at the intersection of criminal justice, uh, pathways of, uh, uh, of reentry and opportunities for, for jobs. Issue of racial justice has been one of the fundamental aspects of our work this year. Wealth inequality, but as you'll see from the presentation from uh, Jonathan and Mike, uh, this goes beyond a straight lens of uh, opportunities for uh, returning citizens. It, it really goes to um, anyone that is traditionally excluded from the workforce, whether by virtue of uh, disability, immigration, uh, uh, experience of homelessness, or, uh, or other characteristics. As to the business case, as oftentimes that is one angle to get the investors to pay attention to this, there's a clear human capital management aspect to this. You might have seen the New York Times article that came with the webinar invite around the tightening labor market and how that has uh, um, um, increased uh, the employment of uh, citizens with a criminal record in, uh, in some cases. Um, but more broadly thinking of it as a really big untapped pool of talent, right? 70 million people in the United States, an ungodly figure who have a criminal record, that is a big pool of people that ought to be in a position to contribute to American society, to the American economy, and that are being left behind. And as again, I think uh, Jonathan and Mike will, will show, there is an element of search and hiring costs that, um, uh, that are associated with more traditional hiring practices. There is exposure around legal and compliance issues, and at the systemic level, if you think, well, unless we provide meaningful opportunities for, um, for individuals to enter the labor force on fair terms, there will be a drain on public resources, there will be a, a drain on the opportunity for people to um, to, to perform and uh, find meaning through work, if that's what, uh, what they see in life. Uh, and systemically, there is this, uh, this inherent risk yeah, coming from, uh, from increasing wealth inequality and increasing drain on, uh, on public resources. So now that as we turn it over to, um, to Mike and Jonathan, uh, what are the quick entry points here for investors? Well, there is, as always, the engagement with managers. It's a similar strategy to, the, to our past analysis with respect to job quality uh, standards and job quality strategies in private debt and private equity, right? Can you make an argument to your managers around, uh, um, can you make an argument to, uh, to your managers around uh, how they um, uh, should be thinking about the, the future of work, uh, uh, sorry, the, the opportunities for, for employment. Uh, lifting up the business case again, if that's what you think they will be mainly responding to. Um, there are several opportunities around uh, shareholder engagement. 
there are uh, initiatives there uh, that uh, uh, I know Pat at uh, Pat Tomaino at Zevin and some of uh, their colleagues have been pursuing with Amazon, with Pepsi, and with uh, with Walmart, going both to disclosure to um, uh, to disclosure to implementation of best practices and the like. And uh, lastly, uh, the initiatives around uh, at the policy level around uh, issues such as uh, ban the box. On the direct part, that's where we get to great fun. You know, you can invest in companies that practice inclusive hiring, and you can invest in the initiatives that support the adoption of uh, inclusive hiring, uh, inclusive hiring practices, which ranges from more philanthropic approaches, alternative staffing organizations such as the work that the our friends at the ICA group have been doing. Um, job boards that facilitate the hiring of um, people that have been previously excluded. And finally, and that's where we get to the main presentation, um, the work that Greystone has been doing around open hiring within Greystone itself and the Center for Open Hiring that is meant to, um, to facilitate the, uh, the growth of open hiring opportunities for others. And with that, I will welcome um, Mike and Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, I'm turning over the comments to you. Thank you so much for joining us, both of you. I'm delighted to have you here and to hear from you. Well, thank, thank you, uh, Andrea, and we're happy to tell the Grayston story and share it with you. I'm going to start us, um, and then I'm going to turn it over to our CEO, Mike Brady, uh, in a couple of minutes. But in addition to you, your team, I want to thank Andrea, and I want to thank the folks that are on the on the call for their interest uh, and attention. And, and it, it's really nice of you, Andrea, to have arranged for that Larry Fink statement to come out where he's essentially supporting uh, in words what Grayson has been practicing for 35 years. So really, thank you very much for that. That was quite timely. Um, but yes, I think some enthusiasm and some caution, as you say, is, is both, both uh, reactions are, are warranted. Um, so some of the folks on this call may be quite familiar with Grayson, others not familiar at all. Um, and perhaps some of you may have had experience uh, of Grayson, but don't even know it. Uh, so by the end of the call, hopefully everybody will be familiar. I'll circle back to that uh, comment in a minute. So, but our plan for the next little while here is I'm gonna sort of set the frame, tell a little bit of the, the story uh, about where Grayson has come from, um, where Grayson is and what we're doing now, uh, and then a little bit of a preview for where we're going. Uh, and then I will turn it over to Mike to um, talk a bit more about the resourcing of those activities and to <clears throat> provide some additional um, precision and commentary around that. We're, we have a, a long history at Grayson. We do not have a long series of slides, so we're gonna talk through uh, each of the slides and we're gonna put, if you will, seeds out there that if people wanna pick up on them and come back in questions and discussion, we'd really welcome that because we really want this to be a, a dialogue uh, in, in addition to a, to a presentation. So to capture the, the, the first core of the, the story. So Grayston is New York State's first registered benefit corporation. As I'm sure most everybody on this call knows, we therefore have to have a mission that we take as seriously as we do our fiduciary responsibilities, and that is open hiring. So let me tell you what open hiring is. So open hiring means that if you want a job at Grayston, 
you put your name on a list, you put your cell phone number on the list, when a job becomes available and you're the next name on the list, you get a phone call. If you answer the phone and if you show up, you have a job, period, full stop, no questions asked. No background checks, no references, no CVs, nothing. Um, that's a rather radical and a rather simple notion. Uh, Grayson has been doing that for, about, for 35 years, and we produce about 35,000 pounds of brownies every day using that process. So if you've had, for example, Ben and Jerry's chocolate fudge brownie ice cream, even if you didn't know it, that was a Grayson brownie. So even if you didn't think you were familiar with Grayston, perhaps you have had an experience of what Grayston produces. So we run uh, two shifts, 24-7, uh, six days a week, producing brownies, both for Ben and Jerry's, but also for online sales, for Whole Foods Market. Uh, and that's the, the core of the, or the platform, I should say, of the, of the Grayston story. So the, the product line, just so people have a sense of what we're doing, is brownies and blondies and cookies, et cetera. Um, but it is, a, it is a, a transformative model for how to bring people into the mainstream workforce who have been systemically excluded. Um, it's around equity. It's, a, as one can imagine, and I don't think we need to belabor the point with this group, around social justice. It is, as the, the, the title indicates here, it's a core, profound business innovation, doing hiring fundamentally different, differently as a means of driving social inclusion. So it marries those two things at, it, at its core. Um, and, and there is, as you alluded to this, Andrea, but I think it's worth emphasizing, you know, there's a role for everybody on this call and elsewhere, obviously, to play, which is maybe a company that is uh, an investment could do open hiring. Maybe there's a different kind of dialogue one can have with fund managers. There's a whole series of things that people can do to become involved in, in the, the search for new ways to drive inclusion. Uh, and that there's a, we'll come to some of those, but, and you mentioned a couple of them already, Andrea, so I'm not gonna repeat that. Um, so the, the core here, right, is Grayson, it's important to remember, is a business. It's not a program, although there are some programmatic elements. You know, we're a world-class bakery producing within the Unilever global ecosystem um, at that level. And the kinds of issues that are being addressed through the business activity are, as Andrea, you mentioned, crime, mass incarceration, 700,000 people returning from prisons every year. But I want to put a note here, importantly, that the open hiring model at Grayson is not directed at any one specific excluded population. It's directed at all, right? So it's at that level. You could be homeless and come to Grayson and put your name on the list. All kinds of different people who have been systemically excluded, not just returning citizens who have been in prison. The background and why we talk about open hiring as a mechanism for thriving communities is our founder, Bernie Glassman, coined this, this phrase as he began this process uh, of, of, of open hiring, the notion that we don't hire people to bake brownies, we bake brownies to hire people. So it's not so much about the brownies, although it's certainly nice that we make brownies rather than widgets, 
but this can be applied in lots of different sectors. And the, the, there is in this a, a spiritual base that is historic and current for Grayston, which is the Buddhist notion of non-judgment, right? So Grayston as a business, we, we measure, we track, we have KPIs, we have expectations and training and et cetera for people, uh, but we assess their performance on the job now not looking at what they might have done in the past, right? So that's the, that's the core concept of non-judgment. So part of the notion, another way we describe this is creating the opportunity for people to experience the dignity of work, right? So people are given the chance, and then there is this development of, of a kind of camaraderie and a kind of teamwork and an intensity of success uh, that we think is really special, really powerful for business, a real competitive advantage in the marketplace. We can, we can dig deeper into that. But to a certain extent, every baker who works on the production floor, who's an open hiring uh, employee, wears their own HR hat, right? Because it's critical for them that it work and that the person next to them work and that the whole system therefore hangs together. There's also a ripple effect beyond the, the baker and the person who's actually making the brownies with their hands in the flour and whatnot. If you think about the, the, the calculus of stuff, a person creates, has an opportunity to experience the dignity of work. That person has a partner, a spouse. They have maybe a child. They have parents or grandparents, right? You can see quickly. I don't need to go keep going, but the ripple effect outward into community from that personal transformation through an organization that is transformative can transform a community. So that ripple effect is pretty, pretty straightforward to see. Let me, let me share a couple of sort of data points and we can, we can circle back to some of these um, if, if interesting. So person gets the call, they show up, they start an apprenticeship program that day, that's their first day of work. Um, about 40% of folks that try it, uh, after about three months, they drop out. Thereafter, 70, almost 80%, 77% folks complete the apprenticeship program, right? So we can talk about why that happens and we have a, a lot of ideas about that, right? Um, average tenure today um, on the team is about 44 months. Um, we have one person on the team that's been with Grayson more than 20 years. Uh, the bulk are in the five to 20 year range. You mentioned the onboarding costs, Andrea. I want to put, or put that out there for people to think about. So Sherm estimates it's about $4,000 to bring a first person on full time. We do it, at, give or take, half of that. Okay. And, and again, just to capture for folks the, the thought behind that, and that's that we invest to bring people in rather than spend to screen them out. Okay. Um, so this is a, just a, a simple timeline um, of the, sort of the Grayston story. I'm not going to read it to you, but I know that there are some people that may be on the phone rather than uh, actually able to see the slides. So I'm going to pull out a couple of highlights, you know, starting with the, the founding. And, and you know, Grayston was, and, and Bernie Glasson was really quite, quite ahead of his time. Um, and, and our goal is to sort of stay ahead of our time and keep driving I don't know if somebody maybe needs to mute their phone. Thank you. Um, to, to keep, to stay ahead of the curve and drive change through innovation. Um, 
we the relationship with Ben and Jerry's really speaks back to the Larry Fink comment in all seriousness, which is that you know, purpose-driven companies and mission-driven companies, I think the evidence is increasingly clear about the competitive advantage that comes from that. There's also a lot of change, and, and this community is certainly involved in it, those folks on this call, um, in terms of hybrid organizations, hybrid social enterprises. So Grayson is very much that in the, the commercial enterprise, the bakery, is owned by a nonprofit organization. Okay, so that we are a true uh, hybrid, structural hybrid. Um, in terms of the scale, right? I mentioned the the hours and whatnot, but it's you know this is this is this is a a local Yonkers-based operation, but it's at an industrial scale, right? So it's a tractor trailer load of brownies every day. Um, so that's the, the 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 nature of the of the work. So as people are working in that environment up in Yonkers in the in the in the plant. One of the things that you know becomes clear is that the folks who come to the to to, to Grayson through open hiring have a set of needs to be able not just to get the job but to succeed on the job, and that's critical, right? Because it's about transformation that's durable, not one-off. So just the same way all of us on this call who are not don't necessarily have the positions we have through open hiring, um, we need to know where our kids are. We need to know where we're going to get our next meal. We need to know that we have a house over a roof over our heads, et cetera. So there is around the core of the bakery business a set of community programs designed to help the bakers succeed at job and at life. And they are designed for both our community and our bakers, but they are similar to all of the things, the kinds of programmatic supports that we all rely on ourselves. And one important caveat, because I know that people from the West Coast and people maybe from rural areas that are, or that are investing in companies in rural areas as well as urban areas, the nature of the community programs are flexible by design. It's not one size fits all. Um, for example, you know, we're in an urban area, but we've talked to a lot of companies that are looking into open hiring and, and how it might work in their operations who are in rural areas. So one kind of community program that might be appropriate for other companies would be a transportation. You know, how do people get to the plant if they don't have a car? Right? So there are other structural barriers that we don't address in our model at Yonkers, but that could well be addressed in, within the same conceptual framework. Okay, as we sort of walk up this curve um, a, a little bit, so the 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 notion of you know being a benefit corporation, being a, a B Corp, being part of B Lab. Um, you mentioned the, the Stern School, Andrea. So, so Grayston also, as part of its effort to replicate and scale and share knowledge, um, also has a variety of, of partnerships with uh, Conscious Capitalism, with NYU Stern, with uh, Prime in terms of educating the next generation, et cetera. We can, again, drill down further into that. Um, the, the 35th anniversary gala, right, which was a celebration of business innovation and social inclusion, honored Ben and Jerry, the two people, not so much the company, but the two people for what they offered uh, and, have, and have created and continue to, to uh, offer the world. And it was a 35 year celebration of what has passed, but in many ways it was also um, a celebration of the next 35 years and what we're going to be doing over that next 35 years. So and as we move forward um, into that next phase of work, you know, we're pretty conscious at, at Grayson of staying clear and true to our core purpose of 
thriving communities via open hiring. So, you know, whether we have a baker's hat on, we think of ourselves as being in the food sector, we look at ourselves as a social justice advocacy organization, as a community, as a force for community development, as social entrepreneurs, all, all of which we do, we keep in mind that it's about systems level transformation, that that's what we're about and changing things at a root cause level such that we can have a more equitable, more just world. I, I wanna point out a couple of parallels I think might be interesting for particularly for this community because you know, when, when Bernie Glassman started talking about open hiring and having no background checks, no references, which hire people as they come to the door, people thought that was pretty quirky to say the least. Um, if you look back though and think about when Grohal and Brunkland or, or you know, coined the phrase sustainability um, or when um, you know, John Elkington coined the phrase the triple bottom line, these things were looked at as pretty marginal as well. Um, but as people discovered that you could take the notion of sustainability as a lens and look around a corporation and find all kinds of ways of making more profit and cutting and, and sharing savings on costs, that created a whole kind of new momentum around sustainability. Similarly, climate change has, I think, now become understood as a key indicator of executive level capacity to see trends and manage risks in different ways, where the risks aren't fully calculable, they're long-term, but they're potentially enormous. So I would posit, and we can talk more about this, and you framed it a little bit already, Andrea, that how we hire people and the whole question of are we able to innovate in that space around human capital management could be the touchstone for this next 10, 20, 30 years of corporate level leadership and whether or not leaders are ready to, to manage this level of challenge. So what are we doing to try and move all of that forward? Here's a simple um, articulation of that, um, right? So, but, so we're already running a bakery 24 seven, like we can't run it 25, uh, sorry, 24, uh, six days a week. Can't run it 25 hours a day, right? That's not gonna work. Um, we are uh, putting up a plant uh, in the EU, so we are scaling in that regard, um, but we are also realizing that we can't just make more brownies, we have to replicate and teach other companies how to do open hiring and make it possible for them to become early adopters of open hiring. I won't go through a whole list of the, the business case and the business benefits for open hiring. Um, you ticked off a couple, Andrea, but in terms of attracting and keeping millennial talent as part of it, building brand value, the whole question of purpose, those are among the other, the other things. Um, and, and we have incoming interest, inbound interest from all different kinds of folks. So you can see on the, on the schematic here, or for those that can't see it actually, so there's three parts of the Center for Open Hiring at Grayston, which is our collaborative learning space to show others how to do this. That there are, there's research and programs as one element, education and training is a second, and consulting is a third. I'm not gonna run through the research and programs because we've talked some about those already, but, but you know, executive education is key because one needs that leadership support. Um, the, the immersion classes are necessary because people learn different ways. Not everybody's a book learner or a visual learner or an auditory learner. Um, employee swaps is something that lets people, lets companies really experience the person 
who was who's gone through open hiring. It's not an abstract concept. It's not a paper about someone. It's the actual uh, experience of being uh, at Grayston or Grayston folks coming to other places. The roundtables, I think, self-explanatory in terms of sharing and changing and driving and designing a conversation that's different. Consulting pieces uh, in terms of the pilot programs, in terms of consulting support and, and onboarding guidelines, you know, we think we have a lot to learn still at Grayston. But we also think after 35 years, we've got uh, a fair bit that we can share, want to share, and that will make it easier for companies to adopt open hiring. And they'll, everybody's going to make mistakes, but they'll make maybe different ones, or we can help mitigate the risk uh, of making mistakes and, and running into problems based on our experience. Um, so that's a core, sort of core, reasonably quick uh, pass through of the, uh, of the open hiring Grayston story of what we've, what we've been doing, what we are doing, um, and what we want to be doing next. So I'm going to pass it off to, to Mike in a minute, but with just a reminder that the, it, it is about the people. It is about sort of human capital. And if we think about how we do HR now and how we've done HR three decades ago, it's a space that's really ripe for disruption to drive the kind of social change that I think this community is, is trying to do. And if we're going to change the world around us, we have to change our practices and our behaviors and be the folks that, that drive that change. So that's a start and I'll let Mike take it from here and I'll click on the next slide and then Andrea, let Mike have at it. Great, thank you, Jonathan. Over to you, Mike. Oh, hold up. Sorry about that. Here we go. Uh, I was. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. Yep. Good. So uh, I was just wanted to echo what Jonathan said, which was to thank you, Andrea, for the opportunity to talk more about Grayston, and really what we see as some fundamental challenges in the economy that we believe open hiring addresses. But also, I want to leave some time, if possible, to hear from the folks on the call around how do we crack this with some. Uh, you know, innovative financing options. And uh, a very brief background, I, I joined Grayston initially as the president of the bakery, uh, and the inbound interest in helping other organizations to adopt the model of open hiring was frankly overwhelming, but also really uh, engaging. And, uh, you know, I was working to get brownies out the door for Unilever, uh, but my real passion was to try to understand how we could scale this model and I've taken that to now lead the nonprofit part of our hybrid organization and work on this Center for Open Hiring. And as we've, do, as we've done it, we've tried to position and understand in the market where we stand, and that's we kind of put these, these statistics on the screen together. Uh, but the, the, once we started getting into a $72 billion number that is spent on screening people out and on the ideas of background checks and reference checks that have been, become kind of the core aspects of a human capital strategy that really are not serving businesses. Uh, if we can just move a basis point from that into a model like open hiring or into thinking about inclusive hiring uh, within a human capital strategy that might be a variant of open hiring, I think there's tremendous opportunity for our organization, but for a number of different organizations that want to engage with kind of the progressive business leader. And so we've constantly now and I think something that I've brought to Grayson that may not have been here before is 
been trying to uncover the, the, the business value of doing things uh, like an inclusive hiring model where uh, you're getting access to an employee base that previously was screened out of your, 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 your business but could actually be a contributing member while you're creating a culture of, of inclusiveness, you're, you're, you're building mindfulness within your community that you're trying to contribute in a positive way. So all of that goes into it, uh, recognizing also that it's cheaper. If you take away the 20 interviews and the onboarding costs and just take the next person in line, admittedly there's some friction in the process, but you can gain so much more by being much more open to a, to a different way of, of onboarding people. One of the things not on this slide, which I think is an important figure um, from an impact investing standpoint is we, we recently concluded an SROI analysis with Yale. And every dollar that we put into open hiring, uh, Yale's analysis came, came out to roughly $9 and change of value in the community. So our ability to employ team members that may otherwise not be employed in a community like Southwest Yonkers creates great value back into the community. And it's that kind of further analysis that we'd like to do to make people aware that open hiring is good for business, it's great for the community, and now our challenge is, is how do we scale it? How do we, how do we kind of bring this awareness to people? Um, do I have control of the slides or? Uh, yes, you should. Can I just tell you to change it? I can do that. Yeah, just, just I'm, I'm not gonna spend much time on it. The next slide, uh, we get into kind of talks to, to the scale that we are going to be working towards. Um, the, there's a lot of different ways to make and measure these numbers, but what we're really wanting to get across with this type of communication is we need to be very uh, metrics driven. The ability to give someone a job, as Jonathan was alluding to, is important to us, but as we go through refining and, 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 and building on our learnings with open hiring, we're doing things that say, okay, the team member at the bakery that's just gotten a job, they may have two kids in, in the Yonkers Public School District. If those kids are struggling to be better off in their lives and, and Grayston as an entity is not reaching out to the community to do what we can to make them more effective, are we making the most of our opportunity with, with our new team member? And so how can we come at open hiring with that multi-generational lens that says not only do we want to help the team member at the bakery, but we want to positively impact those other family members or stakeholders in the community related to that person. And it's not really that heavy a lift. If you think about the employee will be better off if we're also thinking about how do, how do I give him or her the day off when there's a parent-teacher conference so that they can then go to, go to school and, and participate in their kid's parent-teacher conference when we know that that type of participation leads to, you know, let's say 20% greater um, positive outcomes for the child that's involved. That's the real underpinnings of open hiring and the open hiring model, is how do we make lasting impact uh, uh, in the community through, through employment, but all the other mechanisms that we can drive. And this is where we're looking for, for supporters and people to help us at the Center for Open Hiring to conduct this kind of research. And like I said, I want to leave time for questions because typically when we go through this, it, it brings up all sorts of ideas or, or, or um, concepts that people want to work with. But if you want to switch to the next slide, it just gets back to the hybrid organization. 
And this is part of, part of the history of Grayston and now I think part of our challenge in that as a nonprofit manager, I'm now going out and looking for a sizable fundraise, either through philanthropic dollars or impact investing dollars, um, and we have a lot of earned revenue um, mechanisms. But frankly, we're tied to a bakery that I've also recently run that has quite a positive uh, uh, future aligned with it. So how do I demonstrate the proper amount of need and interact between the nonprofit and the for-profit to bring the greatest value to our investors or, 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 or stakeholders or, or, or future donors uh, in a way that's not overly unique that we can't convince people to get engaged? Um, so the next slide then just talks a bit of the, the track record. I'm quite proud of the work that we've been doing, the, the, uh, the recent growth. Ben & Jerry's has been a tremendous partner. They've been challenging us. Um, Jonathan alluded to the, to the Whole Foods relationship. We've got a, a brownie on Delta Airlines. Our ability to sell and, and build a business off of our story around social justice is another big component. You know, I spend a lot of time going to business schools talking about making sure future business leaders are, are considering what social innovation and social justice can do within a strategy at a business organization. Um, I can say without a doubt that were it not for our relationships with Ben and Jerry's and Unilever, Grayston uh, would have never succeeded like we have. And it's, we're going to both leverage that well into the future, but give them the the amount of recognition that they need to uh, to make people aware that those relationships are invaluable. And it that and we're for many years we're just a small player in the supply chain until we've really become a kind of a core part of their sustainable living plan. Uh, the last, you know, set of slides talks about uh, the capital stack that we're thinking about uh, as we grow the bakery and as we look at the Center for Open Hiring, uh, our nonprofit entity, entity. How do we bring dollars to the to the table that will allow us to execute on this mission? Uh, there's a lot of different vehicles. One of them uh, is something we're exploring now around an impact investing giving circle, but you know, certainly access to traditional philanthropic dollars is an easy way for us to ask for, for money. But if, if core to what we're doing at the Center for Open Hiring is trying to be innovative in, in models of employment, we also want to be innovative in the way we secure financing. And so working with those that want to be progressive is, is important to us. Um, and I, I think the easiest thing now is, is perhaps just to, to take questions, Andrea, or, or um, if you have specific things you'd like me to poke into more from the slides, I'm happy to do that as well. Fantastic. Thank you, Mike, and uh, thank you also, Jonathan. I have a couple of questions that have come in through the chat function. I would encourage those that have um, joined us via WebEx to put their questions in the, in the chat. Uh, and I can also unmute the ones on the phone uh, afterwards to see if there are questions from, uh, uh, from them. And then I'll take the prerogative to ask a couple of things uh, myself. Uh, one question was precisely on the issue of, uh, of replication and scaling, as uh, you both were hinting at. Um, there's only so many brownies that, that we can eat, but through the relationship with uh, Unilever, um, the person asking was saying um, it might be possible to spread the model uh, throughout uh, this um, multinational company, have there been some attempts to 
um, to promote open hiring there? And if so, how could other companies try to influence upstream towards uh, the top of the supply chain? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, ben, ben and Jerry's did a pilot project this year. Um, and they have uh, what they're referring to as a values-led hiring model, uh, inspired by open hiring, where they're giving people opportunities to work in their two plants in Vermont. Uh, we're very much engaged with Unilever in a similar model throughout North America, and uh, we're excited that future announcements are pending around their commitment to this. And uh, it, it happened in many ways through conversation that Ben and Jerry's wanted, wanted us to inspire other suppliers in their network to do open hiring. Um, and then the recognition that if they didn't do it themselves, uh, they really didn't have the street cred, if you will, to encourage their other suppliers to do it. Uh, so they're very much behind it. And, and perhaps it wasn't clear in our presentation, but that's the entire purpose of the center is to allow other organizations to learn from what we do, uh, like a Unilever uh, or any of the other multinationals. And, and unlike Grayston, where our entire workforce is open hiring driven, what we're encouraging leaders to do is, is to identify the one job or the 1% of their workforce that they could be more progressive on. And uh, we've seen time and again now, and Larry Fink is another example of leaders calling each other out or standing up for their organizations and saying, hey, we're gonna be more socially just. We're gonna give fair chance employment opportunities. We're gonna do these types of things but they get hung up in the how, and the Center for Open Hiring is, is the how that's gonna hold these people's feet to the fire, if you will, to say this is the way you can do it, and uh, you know, we want you to take a stance on, uh, on bringing people in and, and uh, giving people a chance. Andrea? Jonathan? I'm just going to pick up on one of the things that Mike mentioned, which is that, you know, Ben and Jerry's and Unilever have been phenomenal partners for Grayston. I also think that Grayston and what Grayston has been able to demonstrate year in and year out as a supplier to Ben and Jerry's has, has broadened the thinking at the, at the top at, at both Ben and Jerry's and Unilever in terms of what might have been unimaginable has been being done now for year for years and years. So I think there is a, is a really healthy two-way street in terms of Grayson driving change at Ben and & and Unilever and Ben and & and Unilever being phenomenal partners in support of, of this new, new way of doing things. The, the other thing I was just going to add, because it, it came up but a little, maybe a little bit obliquely, is that there is this, and, and it's this notion of transformation, which Andrea, you and, and, and your, your network, I'm sure, are quite thoughtful and have thought a lot about. But if you, if you imagine the movement that is happening when someone has nothing and then they have something. So going from zero to one is really a phenomenal transformation as a personal journey. Um, so no job and no chance of a job, a job. It's really, it's, it's not just, a, it's a change of state, right? So in, in a sort of from an ecological or a chemical uh, science perspective, it's like the difference between water and steam. Right? They're completely different realities. Um, so, so the nature of open hiring is that it does drive transformation starting at that very basic level of personal, organizational, institutional, community, et cetera. Great, thank you. Um, 
Well, there's, uh, there's so much to, that's interesting to unpack there. And in part, uh, I'm thinking of it also as, uh, as a transformation strategy, as a theory of change, right? What can uh, little scrappy organizations such as, uh, you know, our investor network or for that matter, Greystone within the context of the broad economy do in terms of setting these examples and, uh, and influencing uh, the, the broader players. And even that in some ways goes back to the earlier BlackRock, Larry Fink piece, right? You know, we do this small proofs of concept and then we need to find the pathways. And that's why I, I thought that question about the influencing Unilever was, uh, was especially, um, uh, especially interesting there. Uh, one thing that I'll pick up on, uh, Jonathan, on what you just said about the, the difference between, you know, zero and one, you know, no opportunity versus opportunity. It's of especially interest to me because oftentimes we have looked at this issue of quality jobs uh, and say palliative improvement, right? You get a lot of impact investors that say, oh, so somebody making $2 a day, if we get them to $2.20, that's a 10% uh, um, improvement. But it still kind of sucks compared to um, a lot of the people that are a lot better off than, than that, even though the, the numbers are, are different. And I imagine that the, the theory around, um, around open hiring with that is, well, you're really going from zero, so it is a... Um, a, a drastic change, right? It's not that uh, by making $15 an hour, or I don't know what the uh, what the entry wage is at Grayson, um, we're going to create parity in the world. But at least it is uh, um, going that way. So, how are you all thinking about yeah the, the palliative versus the kind of transformative aspect in uh, uh, in that sense? And maybe that ties into that one uh, percent piece that uh, Mike was. Um, was mentioned, right? Even if companies change open hiring for 1%, um, are there pathways for the employees that come in through open hiring to be internally promoted? Do they go on to higher level jobs, even in other companies after they, uh, they leave Grayson? Do you have any, um, can, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Maybe I'll take a first first answer at that, Sarah, and then, then Mike can, can add more details as I said, as, as, as he said. You know, before being CEO of Grayson as a whole, he was president of the of the bakery. Um, so the answer to the question of do people move on is absolutely, and there are pathways. So a couple thoughts on that. Note though that I, I don't say graduate because it's also okay to stay with your job at Grayson and continue to bake. So it's not like you failed to graduate if you don't leave Grayson. So we, we talk about ambassadors leaving rather than graduates. Um, so there's, there is um, something called path making, which we didn't have time to talk about, but happy to share a little bit more about just right to this point, Andrea. So path making is a, a collaboration. Um, it's central to open hiring, but the way we have structured it most recently is a collaboration with a, a community service organization in Yonkers, such that we have a caseworker at the plant on site to help people with issues of could be a CV, it could be of opening a bank account, it could be a problem in their family, whatever issues might come up for folks, that we want them to be able to do their jobs, do their jobs well, focus on their work, um, and that means they need to address other, have support to address other problems as well. So that's one mechanism for helping people move forward. The other is that, it, and it dovetails with our whole workforce development program, um, which is a training program and we have different, we have culinary arts and we have security and janitorial, a bunch of different things at different times to meet the, the needs in the community where the jobs actually are. 
but so so yeah there's a there's a list actually that i was just looking at recently um in terms of you know places like whether it's whether it's cooking at you know bgr or whether it's home depot or whether it's other companies more or less well known but yeah folks come through the grayston model um, and go go onward out of that model into other jobs and part of what and your your point is well taken about you know zero to one if if one still is terrible and you really need to get to six to survive one's not so great but the the, the point though of, of why i said that change of state is it because not everybody is going to be doing open hiring right away but the person who's gone to grayston and maybe only has worked at six months at grayston didn't work out for whatever reason they now have something to put on a cv for the next possible employer that is going to request a cv Right, so that does fundamentally change their ability to navigate in our world, even as we're trying to change that that world. Yeah, I I I want to uh, to make the one comment on the zero to one, and uh, you know when people start, and, and the essence of open hiring in our community of Yonkers is it provides hope, where. In other communities, there is no hope for many, too many people. And the hope is that if, if you commit to waiting until your opportunity to come off the job list, you'll get that chance. And that, that trans, that's, a, that's a massive transformation. And what we'd like to do through our work, and, and I love the way you referred to us, because I think we are just that scrappy little guy that can maybe make real impact, is try to make people understand how important that hope is just by creating one or two jobs in your organization that can give people uh, a real, something to look forward to that in too many communities, there isn't that out there. Terrific, and um, uh, another quick thing to start putting in, um, on, the, on the investment side, uh, thinking from the limited dollars that are probably, you know, where any investor will uh, make uh, outsized returns uh, on, on something like this, it is fundamentally predicated on the, on the impact thesis there. Um, it seems like investing through this open hiring circle would be more catalytic in terms of the impact they can create versus investing in directly within an entity that does open hiring? Is that a correct understanding as you view the, the, the impact thesis for the center? I mean, I, I would envision the impact investing circle essentially identifies the organizations that will be doing the open hiring and uh, those investments will go as, a, as, as the catalyst and kind of the spark to encourage organizations to, to do open hiring. But the investments in those organizations can take a, a lot of different forms, but allow them to grow and create more jobs in their entities. Great. Um, one change of pace, and then, you know, Jonathan, feel free to add or elaborate on this, or if you have your own questions that you, that you wish had, uh, uh, had been asked. Um, I think it was, uh, uh, it was Mike that uh, cited a statistic of $1 going to open hiring, creating $9 of wealth within the community, or maybe it was Jonathan, forgive me for the misattribution, uh, but still it's a very significant number uh, in terms of the, um, of the benefit created for a place, especially a place like Yonkers, right, or if you take a place-based approach where these 
distributed value creation really matters. Um, has there been an effort around creating tax incentives for companies that uh, do open hiring or, you know, God forbid I'm heard mentioning social impact bonds, but it seems like to the extent that you can tie your work to reducing some costs for a municipality in the provision of services or otherwise, right? It seems like there are a couple of opportunities around that um, uh, and the question was wondering, yeah, if you have explored that. Uh, we're anxious to explore it. You know, there, the, one of the slides we had already presented, there is a work opportunity tax credit that's already available to businesses. Uh, businesses that take on a, a team member that is formerly incarcerated, a veteran, uh, people that have dealt with poverty, there's, there's roughly $4,000, or excuse me, $2,400 uh, per qualified employee if you're able to, to bring one of those team members on. So there's money out there already if uh, an organization wants to be progressive. I think it's particularly attractive to smaller businesses that are asking themselves, how do they become more, or what's the value to them of bringing on a more inclusive workforce? Well, there's these tax credits out there. We would love to begin to work with a private partnership in uh, Yonkers to drive further tax credits to, to new businesses that are doing development in this community that would be progressive around open hiring. Uh, I think there's, there's, there's tremendous ground there to cover. Hey, let me just, if I can, Andre, build on that a, a little bit. With a with a little bit of a risk lens, am, am I hearing? Yeah. Um, so to, to build on that, with look, thinking a little bit about risk. Right, so there's more and more research around whether, whether you're looking at sort of DNI and whether you know, does diversity and inclusion really help a company? Um, if you're looking at purpose, if you're looking at attributes of brand value, I, I think there's there's ever more evidence that if it's durable and if you give it enough time, those things have significant impact uh, in terms of profitability, in terms of ROI, et cetera. If you give it enough time, though, is a key phrase, right? Short-term versus long-term or mid-term. So one of the things that the, the center is designed to help other companies and, and other thought leaders grapple with is, you know, what does it take and, and what's, you know, Mike mentioned sort of what does the, what does the mixed cap stack look like, but how do you, what's the appropriate way to share risk and return when there is some risk, where there is, are, where there are public policy goals being met through business innovation, right? What's the role of the investor? What's the role of the government entity? And, and what's the role uh, you know, of, of a company. So working through what, how to, how to share that, that risk and return appropriately, you know, is something that Grayson spent a lot of time working on. We've begun to do some convenings around that at the center. We want to do uh, more of those because clearly there's, if you, if one can, can refine that equation, the potential for all players to win in the timeframes that they need is huge. Yeah, and uh, and that I think goes back to the intersection that has been well explored by this group and beyond on uh, 
between quality jobs, the business case for quality jobs, and long-termism, right? The need for taking a much more long-term approach to the, the investment. And I think that uh, uh, the tax uh, advantage that uh, Mike was uh, was bringing up was one of the uh, one of the opportunities for, in the short term, creating the incentive, and then in the long term, the uh, the entity would be uh, would be reaping the um, the returns from this. And uh, I see that uh, um, Delilah Rothenberg from Pegasus put in a bunch of really good questions there. If you see them, Mike and Jonathan, if you want to address any or all of them in turn under the chat function. I, I definitely do uh, want to address them. I have to read them first, though, so hang on a second. <laughs> Yeah, these are all these are all great questions, and and the work that we're doing uh, as we bring more organizations on board with this concept. Um, you know, one of the key challenges when we approach organizations is to help them understand what open hiring may be in their organization. And so, as we did this with Ben and Jerry's, you know, they didn't adopt exactly what we did. Uh, they had to think, you know, what where within their values as an organization would they like to create an inclusive hiring model? And then how do they communicate that out into an organization and a community that is already really um, wanting a job? So they might have a job opening that someone that's worked at Ben & Jerry's for years wants to have, and now they're going to give it to someone with a barrier uh, or that had faced barriers to employment in the past. You know, they have to explain why they're doing that. A lot of that communication is key, we think, uh, in the early stages for a successful implementation. You know, the, the profitability metrics come in a, in a variety of levers. Uh, like we said, giving someone opportunity to start at an open hiring and move in a pathway forward, that starting position may not have to be paid at the same level as uh, where they would be in six months or a year afterwards, and you could use those dollars uh, to improve on the trainings but you've just saved on all the onboarding costs around the, uh, the recruitment process. So it's depending on where the, the organization wants to make their and measure their profitability. Uh, I think there's a lot of different levers that we can pull. The, uh, the part where Unilever and Ben and & Jerry's is very engaged is by having a diverse workforce um, with their uh, manufacturing team members, does that allow them to attract more progressive millennials um, at their executive levels, and how do they how do they interact all of those pieces together? Um, the market data questions we've got a number of different things we're working on. The SROI numbers I, I spoke of earlier, Yale is going to release that uh, in advance of the, the formal launch of our center uh, later in the spring. Um, the sample sizes are quite small. Uh, you know, admittedly, Grayson's work has been going on for 35 years, and now we're, we're working with the most progressive organizations, and we honestly appreciate that we're going to have to build the sample size up uh, until we have real numbers in the thousands that people can look at and say, yeah, this is, this is um, clearly a model that works. But what we're, what we're banking on is that an organization that wants to be progressive can find those one or two jobs to start, and that we can inspire those organizations and manage the risk that Jonathan talked about. Um, 
I think the, the cost per employee breakdown Jonathan got into, it's, it's uh, relatively, and if this is onboarding, you know, we talk about 4,500 on average in the U.S. for onboarding a new employee. Ours is about 2,000. Uh, the ongoing costs are no different in our measurement than they would be at any organization. Just to pick up we on don't screen anyone out. So the, the last one is, is the, the key part and where we like to kind of emphasize is there's so much bias inherent in a lot of human capital strategies that our model where you screen no one out, uh, with the exception, and I, so I have to say you have to have an I-9, you know, you need to be able to work legally in the U.S. Um, but other than that, we give everyone the chance. And that's core to what we, we see as our, the, the kind of the simplicity but the quite radical nature of open hiring. Just to pick up uh, on a couple threads, and it's a, it is a good package of, of questions. Um, in, in terms of the key challenges, I would say that it's really mindset, which is why part of what we're offering at the Center for Open Hiring is exposure through classes, through meeting people, through employee swaps, et cetera. Because once you, so, so mindset, I would say, is the, in some ways the key challenge. Um, and I think the, the, opportun the opportunity presents itself and kind of makes its own case once, once you have a proof point. So that's why we're, we're always encouraging people to actually come see Grayston in operation working as a world-class bakery. It's, it's not a theory. It's, it's a proven practice over decades. Um, and once people see that and, and, and the, their mind is open to, wow, like that actually works, um, then you begin to see how it can be implemented at different kinds of companies in different sectors, different shapes and, and, and sizes. Um, the, the, the screening people out, you know, Mike, Mike addressed, I mean, Grayston's model is sort of profoundly simple, which is, you know, if you can do the work, do the work. We're happy to have you. If you can't do the work because you're dropping bags of flour or you're, you know, spilling the, the butter and the oil or the cocoa, or whatever, then you're eventually going to get fired. Um, so it's 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 not this program idea, but again, it's um, encouraging people in the in, in in hiring positions in HR, investors who, who can ask questions, to pose questions about why are certain restrictions put into job descriptions. Why are we requiring high school diplomas, college preferred? Is that really a requirement of the job or not? So there's, there, are, there are threads throughout the open hiring human capital management um, tapestry that can be pulled in a lot of different directions to draw more attention to the issue and to then get exposure so people come to understand what is it we're really about and how we can really bring people in who otherwise would never have a chance. Yeah, and, and so the, the, the one kind of statistic there that, that Jonathan brought up, which is a good one, and if there are human capital specialists on the call, they'll know this, but by putting that kind of language into a job description to screen out people that don't have a high school diploma, you've significantly reduced the likelihood that you're gonna bring some, a man or a woman of color into your workforce when actually a high school diploma is not what you're, 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 you're screening for. You just need to know that someone can read or someone's capable of responding to their manager, which uh, you know, doesn't always necessarily come with a high school diploma either. 
So it's it's the the reference that says, you know, what are you actually trying to achieve through your your onboarding and your recruiting process that might actually prevent you from finding the right kind of team member. Hey, one question that goes a little bit beyond uh, uh, the scope of this, but maybe you two will uh, will entertain it. Um, what are some of the uh, practices that uh, you all have? The, what are some of the best practices that you can share with investors around more inclusive hiring beyond this? So I imagine the references to uh, ban the box, to disclosure by big companies. Is there anything else that as Practitioners are very much uh, in the in the world of more inclusive hiring. You can recommend beyond open hiring for investors that might be public equities investors or otherwise. <laughs> That's a. I don't. We, uh, Jonathan, I'll give you a minute to think about it as I'll, I'll take it on. But uh, you know, we don't get asked that off, all that often. Um, the honest answer around the way we do our work, we haven't seen others doing it similar to us, and now you know we're looking to scale this model. That's that's the challenge. The uh, I, I just spent a lot of time with uh, Sean Dove, who works for uh, the campaign for Black Male Achievement. Uh, very much supportive of black-owned businesses and venture capital work that goes into minority-owned businesses. Uh, he and I talk a lot about social enterprise and the failure rate of businesses. Uh, the difference with what we're trying to do at Grayston is inspire job creation at already successful businesses and putting impact investment dollars towards businesses that have already shown staying power that want to grow and how can you kind of infuse a, a social justice model or a social enterprise model into those. Um, but the other, you know, the, the, the work at, uh, uh, so we're doing something with MBK Yonkers, which is trying to be very progressive around uh, uh, employment and uh, ensuring we're overcoming the systematic changes in communities. So I, I look at my brother's keeper. Uh, it's not really an impact investing model, but they're trying to, to strive towards more progressive things. Uh, Jonathan, yeah, me, I hope maybe I gave you a minute. Let me try to reframe the question in a, in a different way, perhaps. Um, let's just imagine that one of the folks that is calling in, whose name we don't see, is actually Larry Fink, and he says, okay, love what you're saying. Here's the $27 million that you all are looking for. What can I do with my other billion dollars that would advance this general social change strategy? It was more at that level, right? Uh, beyond the direct investment, are there any best practices, perhaps, that can be um, applied across asset classes? Yeah, yeah. So, um, if you could arrange the call, we'd love to actually have that discussion. <laughs> um, but, 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 so, but that's a really good question, Andrea. So, part of it, part of the answer, right, on the fly here is every publicly traded company ought be reviewing from the lens of social justice and from the lens of long-term profitability, its methods for hiring people. What does it say on the website? What are the, what are the exclusionary 
uh, tropes that are just built into the system that nobody has thought to try and take out, right? So the beauty and the, and the profoundness of open hiring is that we're not going, we're not saying, well, if you've done this, then maybe not. If, you've done, if it's been three years and you've been clean, then we're not, you know. So open is just open, right? So it's not kind of cherry picking diff, one plank of the fence to take down. It just says no fence, right? Now for a publicly traded large multinational company, you may need to do some sort of careful looking first rather than just pull down the fence, right? It's part of the, the DNA of Grayson. It's not for everybody else. So that kind of very active um, uh, sort of review and an inventory of open hiring practices, of, of hiring practices through the lens of social justice and long-term profitability would be one piece. The, the other piece would be, again, around this risk notion of, of pooling, um, you know, whether, it, whether it's BlackRock or anybody else, getting a set of companies that are maybe part of a single supply chain to band together and figure out how to create an ecosystem that is you know, transformative financially, that has some maybe philanthropic role, has some public policy role, but that where there is a commitment durable over time and there's money to back it up, um, and, and maybe the hurdle rates need to be a little bit lower or they need to have an extended time frame or whatever, um, to be able to sort of push this innovation and give it time to work. That's the kind of place where, where, the, where the BlackRocks of the world could put some money on the table and, and give it a slightly different, uh, you know, the barrier could be slightly different to their return and the timetable for the return. Great. Thank you. And going back to that uh, original piece, right, uh, the, the direct investment, uh, um, can you, Mike, tell us a little bit more about uh, what the type of capital that you're looking for is like, or where would interested investors go to, or Jonathan? Absolutely. Uh, you know, we've got quite a quite a mixed uh, request, but we're essentially looking for a $13 million number, roughly, uh, half of it to do team building and capacity building within the entity to roll out the three different pieces. Uh, of, the of, of uh, what the Center for Open Hiring will, will do. So as a reminder, Jonathan talked about them, the consulting aspect, the research and services of our actual model, and then the training and education. We've got a number of pilots underway that we can demonstrate our work. Uh, we think there's incredible interest in all of those services, and with the, an investment will become sustainable. Uh, half of the investment is also to, to uh, do capital improvements on the location. So we haven't talked much about it, but there is a physical location of the center, which is a th roughly 30,000 square foot space that housed our nonprofit programs at Grayston that uh, is, uh, includes an 1855-year-old mansion, which is a beautiful space. We think it can attract the world-class organizations to it to learn, to engage, to, to create the right environment, but we need to upgrade the space. Uh, the impact investing opportunities in both of those, uh, in the long term, we think the, the work of the Center for Open Hiring can be a, uh, you know, I, I referenced a break-even opportunity by 2020. I think there's a ton of opportunity for us to be significantly revenue positive in the future. And then the asset value of the actual physical building 
Uh, there's a, a real estate component to that. There is a, a long-term lease agreement. There's a lot of different ways we can play the impact investing uh, component to the, to the space, which you saw, Andrea, when you came to visit. I, I, I thank you for putting up the slide. You know, it, we are, we are um, anxious to engage with investors on any level relative to trying to get immersed with us and trying to help us to solve how best to structure it. We found, and this is something Jonathan alluded to, that our structure is both really engaging to people, but also a challenge. You know, how do you take an organization that's already, you know, 18 million in, in revenue to become a $40 million organization and figure out the right levels for people to pull. Uh, it, it's going to take a collection of people working with us on that, and, and we're open to those types of conversations. Terrific. Jonathan, Thank I you. don't know. Yeah. Good. No, I was, just gonna, um, I was only going to add in just because it, for, for clarification purposes, that last slide that popped up. Right, so, again, in, in keeping with, Gra with our Grayston sort of philosophy of, of collaborative learning and the hybrid model. So in addition to direct potential investments in, in Grayston that Mike has alluded to, you know, for folks that are also looking at or, who, or who have an interest in figuring out ways to find and encourage other early adopters to help them manage risk to, and to ha that have either uh, impact or philanthropic capital uh, in play, we have this project that we are setting up around uh, impact investing uh, giving circles that, that is a pooled fund uh, and that then will pre-screen potential investment targets who are early adopter companies. You know, we can, this is not the time to, to go into that in detail, but that is a, another uh, type of engagement mechanism uh, that we are working uh, to, to put into play collaboratively such that, you know, again, we want to be innovative, not just in terms of what we've done already the last 35, but financial innovation. And you all, you know, you all know this better than, than we do. Financial innovation is going to be key to whether we can drive innovation in terms of social justice and get businesses to be pulling in, the, in a positive direction around social justice and, and equity. Terrific, thank you. And speaking of the slide, a couple of people asked if it was possible to share the deck. I imagine it's not a problem with you all. Correct. Great. To totally fine. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you all so much. I think we've uh, we've covered a lot. Thank you, Mike and Jonathan, for making a time for this, and to everybody that uh, joined us today. Uh, we'll be sharing the contact information as part of the deck. Um, and um, hopefully you will all be interested in learning more about the Grayson work. I do encourage you to visit. If you have a chance to go up to Yonkers, it is quite an incredible experience to uh, speak to the workers there, hear directly from their experience and, uh, and see how this uh, factory works and how it's been transformative to them. And if you want to learn more about the work of the Investor Network, if you're joining us as a guest, please feel free to reach out to us, um, Kurt at transformfinance.org, or visit our website, transformfinance.org. Um, and we look forward to staying in touch with you. Congratulations on all the amazing work that, uh, that you're doing. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, everyone. Till the next time. Take care.